0: Amen. Amen. Okay, if you've got your Bibles, please turn to John chapter 5. We'll be getting there in just a second. John chapter 5. We've been going through a series and uh, in, in the first six chapters of John all the way through to Easter. And Easter is coming upon us very, very quickly. I'm um, looking forward to that very much. We've got a special Easter Sunday planned And it's a great Sunday for you to invite your friends and neighbors and family who maybe don't know Jesus, or if you're here and you're still kind of thinking through what Christianity is about, Easter Sunday is going to be a great day. Nicole and Leishan and the team have got some wonderful things uh, planned, and you'll hear more about that in the next week or so. Um, but Easter Sunday is coming, and we've been working through the first six chapters of John, looking at some of the words and actions of Jesus, and, uh, and it's been wonderful to preach on them. I've thoroughly enjoyed it. And uh, this week, I mean, we're going we're gonna to center on a particular uh, a question that Jesus asks. Questions. I don't know how many of you have ever been asked a question that you uh, immediately wish. I wish they hadn't asked that. I, w- I wish they hadn't asked that question. I remember distinctly, I think each of my children have done this at various times in their lives, when they've said, hey dad, who's your favorite? And then of course you go, you are. And you all are my favorite. You're like, oh, this is, this is really bad, they're so desperate to be very Oh, as you're reaching for that donut, you go, oh, how many donuts have you had? That's a question I don't want you to be asking me right now. When was the last time you went to the gym? Again, a question I don't want to be asked right now. Uh, have you put on weight is a question that your spouse asked you, apparently. And, and that's, that's not a good question to be asked. But there's some questions that we need to be asked, even if we don't want to be asked them. Because those questions are the ones that cause us to really consider and reflect. And they're revealing about, about who we are. That's what questions do. Good questions reveal something about us to ourselves. The Bible is filled with questions. And God, right at the beginning, we're going to see this in a little minute, God, right at the beginning of Scripture, starts asking mankind questions. Now, is that because God doesn't know the answer? No, He's omniscient. He's all-knowing. He knows everything. But the questions through the Bible are always about revealing something to the person about themselves. It's not God wanting to know. He already knows. But do we know? And so we're going to come to a question in this uh, passage that is incredibly revealing. Not about just about ourselves, and, and it is. It's actually quite convicting. But also about who Jesus is. So I want to read this passage. It's quite a few, verse, quite a few verses. It's a very well-known passage of Scripture. And it's in John chapter 5. And uh, we're going to read uh, some verses together. As I go through, they should appear on the screen. Uh, After this, there was a feast of the Jews and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, he's referring to the Passover. It is a very busy time of year. Now, there is in Jerusalem, by the Sheep Gate, a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I am going, uh, going another steps down before me. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, the man who healed me, that man uh, said to me, take up your bed and walk. They asked him, who is this man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn, as there was a crowd in this place. Afterwards, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, see, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you, So here's what we're going to do. We're going to walk through this passage and I want to show you what the big question is that Jesus asks him and us and how it relates. And we're also going to look at one of the most uh, provocative questions that Christians have about God and salvation. And if this is your first time and you're just thinking about Christianity, what you're going to get is an insight to the way that God sees you, whether you believe in him or not, whether you believe in Jesus or or not. He's going to press some buttons, but that's why questions are good. That's why questions are good. So, the first thing I want us to look at is the scene. Where is it? Where is this miracle actually happening? So, it says in Jerusalem, by the sheep gate, a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. Now, this was for a long time used against Christianity because this 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 pool had never been found, in fact, some people would suggest that the type of architecture that it that it is creating is, is not even part of that historical time frame. The problem with that argument was they discovered it. it was underneath a church, and so this is an artist 's impression of what the pool would look like and so really and now you might look at that and go hang on a second that's not five colonies but that's what they would count one all the way along the top two three four five in the middle and that's what the pool would look like it was a very large pool and it, this scene that we're told about is incredibly chaotic this place will have been filled with people seeking healing They believed that the waters were stirred and it was found later on that there's actually an underground uh, system of water that would bubble up into the pool and it would stir. So these waters were probably very healthy for you, but they certainly weren't miraculous. So the scriptures, some Bibles actually include the verse about the waters stirring and it's more of an informational thing about what people's beliefs were rather than believing an angel came down to stir the water. So that's the scene. And it's a chaotic scene. It's a scene where it literally would have been filled with sickness, desperation, confusion, anger because you can't get into the water. It's not a pleasant place to be necessarily. And what I love about Jesus is he walks in. He walks into this chaos. He steps in and he sees this man. So let's look at this verse. This verse is incredibly encouraging. When Jesus saw him lying there, who? The man that we've just read about who'd been a, a paralytic for as far as we know for 38 years. Part of his life would definitely have been begging for a living and, and that, was, that was his paradigm. That's where he lived. This is who he was. That's what his identity was. That's where his self-worth was tied up. Everything about this man was tied up with his inability to walk. We know he can't walk because he can't get into the pool. And so there's Jesus, he walks in, and what does the scripture say? When Jesus saw him lying there, he knew that he'd already been there a long time. And with this verse, we step into a controversial topic when it comes to Christianity. And I love the fact that Jesus and the Bible step into topics that we struggle with. Now, before I start talking about this, we need to start thinking, this is difficult, in a non-Western, entitled, fair mindset. See, this is an Eastern book. The Bible is from the East, and they wouldn't necessarily think about what is fair, because our judgment about what is fair is culturally uh, skewed. We think this is fair and this is not fair. Why do we think it's fair? Well, it's because we, and we pull back from our experiences. This is who we, what we think as a culture. This is our time frame. It's not fair. And so it's very difficult for us to jump into some theology and some questions around the Bible with our Western mindset because we immediately go, this isn't fair. Where God doesn't claim to be fair, God claims to be just. That's what he claims to be. And it's hard. It's hard for us to wrap our minds around this. Because here's what this verse says. Jesus saw him. He knew him. He approached him. He talked to him. He went out of his way to go to this man. So here's a first question that I just want you to mull over. Did this man look for Jesus? Know Jesus? Approach Jesus? Talk to Jesus? No, there is nothing in the scripture that would suggest that. This man has no clue who Jesus is. He's not looking for Jesus. He's not considering Jesus. He's not thinking about Jesus. He's just laid there in life. It's just a normal, ordinary day. Nothing special about this day. Just another day that I don't get into the water, as far as this man is concerned. So what is this controversial subject? As a culture, as a society, we often use the phrase, oh, they found God. They found religion. That, that I decided to be a Christian, or I am a Christian, I, I, I found Jesus. The reality is this, and this is where we go, oh, this is difficult. The reality is this, and, and the reason that we're going to jump into this is it's such a profound theology and thinking that if we actually built it into our lives, it brings tremendous freedom. It brings tremendous freedom. And it's literally this, that Jesus finds you. He steps into our chaos, into our sin, into our desperation, in the middle of our lives, sometimes unexpectedly, and He reveals His love and care for us. He approaches us. He sees us. Us, He knows us first. That is the overwhelming mega theme of the Bible. Now, you can use, you can do theological gymnastics and try and make it say something that it's not. But the reality is, is you will find scripture after scripture after scripture that shows that Jesus approaches the person, sees the person, loves the person first. Not the other way around. Not the other way around. So the Bible, this is the Bible. If you find God, it's because God found you first. Period. That's the, that's the teaching of the Bible. And we go, okay, hang on a second. Well, that, that has implications that I don't like. That has implications because of because, uh, uh, free will and various other thoughts, that this is my choice, and we're not even getting towards free will and choice. This is just the reality of God first approaching you. And here's the first reason why this is good news. And this is a huge, huge, uh, freeing, encouraging thought. It's if that God sees us, finds us, approaches us, Talks to us first in the middle of our desperation, sin, challenge, then that shows that he's such a loving, caring, and merciful God. Because let's face it, let's just consider for a second a time period in your life, and maybe if it's particularly hurtful to you, it will come to your mind very quickly. Time period where you felt so distant from God, so detached from God, so sinful. So ashamed, so guilty about what you have done or what you have said or what you've been involved in and what you've done to somebody or what you've been involved in that that shame and guilt brings this wedge between you and God. And our reaction in times, our human reaction is to go hide, is to withdraw, to isolate. And that often happens in church. People drift away. But God, in his loving mercy, is the one that comes after you. He doesn't wait necessarily for you to come after him. He just gently starts wooing you back, starts drawing you back. See, the scriptures say this constantly. This is why I use the word megatheme. A megatheme in the scripture is when there's this constant message all the way through the scripture it's just it's said all often over and over and over and over the mega themes like the atonement the resurrection the virgin birth the love and mercy of god the sovereignty of god these are mega themes all through the scriptures then there's minor themes and interestingly it's the minor themes that people get hung up about and get arguing about you know well is it this way is it that way and, and if we could just focus on the mega themes not saying they're unimportant but the mega themes, this is a mega theme in the scripture and it's summed up like this. In Romans 3, Paul says this. There is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, there is no one who seeks God. What is he referring to? He's talking about before you come into contact with Jesus. In other words, there is nothing inside the human spirit that would want to seek after God. Nothing. Nothing. In fact, in other places, you're actually referred to as dead. There is no interest in God. In fact, I'll go further. The scripture teaches this. We recoil, we resist, and we replace God. We don't want anything to do with Him because we see somehow if we come into a relationship with God or if we go to that church, then somehow our life is going to change and we resist that. And so what we do is we all re-replace God with other things because we are worshiping uh, we're, we're pe- beings who want to worship. I'm halfway through watching a documentary right now. Uh, for those of you who understand what I mean, you know, you're never able to see something that's an hour and a half long in one sitting. I've, I've, on holiday, maybe. Maybe my sabbatical, I'll be able to do that. But I'm in like, I'm probably a third of the way through a documentary about Coldplay. It's a brilliant documentary my son recommended. I watched it. I love it. It's great. I've been to see Coldplay, so I can kind of relate. And they're incredible, wonderful documentary. But it often flicks back to this particular stadium or open-air stadium in uh, Sao Paulo. And I I don't know, there must be... It looks like a couple hundred thousand people. It's unbelievable. And the second this band come out on the stage... And they start the drums. First thing everybody does. Arms go up in the air. And they think it's funny that we raise our hands in church. Arms go up in the air and they start bouncing. And it's like this. Joy in their face. They're excited about being there. They're like, this is awesome. And you know what? I'd be right there with them. Freaking brilliant. Awesome. Why do we do that? Now, some of you might go, I wouldn't do that. Well, cheer up. Because I think, honestly, I think, you know, when you're surrounded by people who are full of joy, joy comes out. You want to worship. What they're doing is they're just seeing an echo, just the slightest echo of what is possible in the beyond. And they respond to it and they worship. So we replace God by other things and we worship them instead. money, Possession, relationships, power, popularity, looks. The list goes on. We recoil. That is the innate, natural behavior of somebody who doesn't know Jesus. We want to do things our way. We want spirituality, but on our terms. People believe somehow that God will destroy their happiness and freedom and joy. So they recoil. So I'm saying all this because essentially it's important to understand this, for reasons I will share in a second. There is no desire outside of God to seek God inside the human spirit. There is no desire until God listen to this word, initiates that desire. Okay, some of you might not be still not with me, so let me show you some scriptures. John 6:44, "No one can come to me unless the Father draws him." Acts 16, verse 14. The Lord opened Lydia's heart to respond to Paul's message. Who opened the heart? Paul? Paul's preaching? Paul's miracles? No, God. Which is great news for a fumbling preacher like me. Because regardless of how entertaining or how brilliant and how marvelous and how intellectual I am not, I still wouldn't be able to convince those who God hasn't opened their hearts yet. Can you see why this just starts getting encouraging? One John four nineteen. We love him only because he first loved us. And my favourite, favourite verse about this, right at the beginning, when Adam and Eve have just sinned, what did they do? They recoil away from God. They resist God, and they go and hide behind a bush because they're naked. I mean, first of all, how deaf do you need to be to think that you can actually hide from God? This is God. He's on. He's, he's omnipresent. He's everywhere at once. Walking through the garden, go, well, I've got no idea where they are. They are really good. But this is what God says one of the first questions that God asks in the Bible Where are you? Where are you? Oh, friends, where are we? See, this is God seeking after Adam and Eve and then lovingly making them clothes even though they've just sinned, even though they just questioned Him, even though they're full of guilt and shame, He draws close to them, shows them how much He loves them, and He asks this question, where are you? Where are you? And that question resonates all through the Bible. Where are you? See, this theology is so important that we understand that it's God who initiates faith, not us initiating faith. And if we can grab hold of it, it'll increase our sense of self-worth. Because God chose me. It'll make us secure. That if God initiated faith in me, then I can be secure that he loves me. It tells me that he's in complete control. We like the idea of being in control until things get out of control. Then we want God to be in control. Where are we? (laughs) It increases our hope. This one. Even if these three are something you need to really think through as to how it affects you, but this one. For those of you who've got prodigals, for those of you who've been praying for the same person for years, for those of you who've got children who just don't seem yet to get it, let me encourage you. It's God who initiates the faith, not your good parenting. Not your ability to set a great example. Not your ability to say the right thing at the right time. Because let's face it, parents, we don't. It's not our ability at all. It's God's ability to draw. Now, do all those things reinforce God's love and show them Jesus and and, and show them how grace-filled and forgiving and loving Jesus? Absolutely. But that initiation of faith... Is all about God. And if you think about it, every one of you who are Christians, if you think about when you became a Christian, you know this to be true. Because there would have been one day, unless you're like my wife, who just seemed to be born a Christian. But even then, I know there's been moments when God has drawn her in. But for some of us, we can remember the moment that the day before, not interested. Day after, I need to... I need to start thinking about my spirituality, or heaven, or God, or... Where does that come from? It's not Satan. I promise you that. That's God just going, time to have a think. And you know what? That process can take decades. Some people, it's immediate. In my experience as a pastor, the, one that ta- the ones that take longer to get into faith are often the strong- often Not always. Often the strongest. Because they wrestle with it. And it's like Jacob wrestling with God and then they walk away with a blessed limp, marked for life. So be encouraged, friends, who are sharing faith in the gospel with people that you love and care for. It is God who's in control. And it brings great freedom and peace in ministry and life because we can say, all I need to do, friends, Christian friends, all you need to do is recognize you've been placed on purpose to make intentional friendships, to share your story, to pray and serve, pray for and serve, and share the South with people. If you be obedient to that, God will take care of the rest. God will take care of the rest. I have a friend of mine from years ago who became a Christian. And I was telling Jack this yesterday. He became a Christian because a few months prior a Christian friend of his, all he said was, I'm a Christian. That was it. There was no, let me take you through the Romans road of salvation. Let me give you a tract. Have you, you know, you need to come to church. Have you watched right now media? Have you seen Francis Chan? None of that. It was just, I'm a Christian. And he looked at his life and he looked at what he said and he put the two things together and he went, what am I? What am I? And he couldn't escape it. He couldn't escape it. It was the process of God starting to draw, just like John says, draw him to himself until eventually this plagued him so much he was having sleepless nights that he sought out a pastor who he didn't even know. He just looked him up in the phone book. Do you remember them? Phone book. And, um, and, then, and then the pastor led him to Jesus. I'm Christian. This is why in Romans 1 verse 16, the gospel is the power of God to salvation. Not our ability as a church to get everything right. Not our ability to do a great job in kids' ministry, although that's important. We want to do things with excellence. We want to do things well. But if we just put it all on ourselves, then it gets really, really difficult very, very quickly. Because the opposite, if it was us that initiated faith, then that gets really condemning when people don't become Christians. Because it's that I failed if you don't become a Christian. I failed as a parent if my kid has not become a Christian. I failed as a parent if my kid's not interested in church. I failed as a friend. I failed as an employee. I failed as a business owner. And that's not what the scripture says. Not our ability to convince them. And, And here's the really big argument. This just makes me smile if we don't believe this truth that it's the power of God and salvation why are we praying? because what we do is we pray that God would change somebody's heart well yes because he's the only one who can which is why it's freeing so here's what some of you might be thinking with mental crossed arms and slightly furrowed brows sounds very Calvinistic and I you know I've heard that's not good. Sounds very Calvinistic. Calvinism and Arminianism are two opposite, well not particularly opposite, but two thoughts when it comes to salvation. So let me just help you very, very quickly for those of you who are interested. Calvinism and Arminianism agree on this point. They both believe that God initiates faith. Period. Where they disagree is what happens after that. Calvinists believe you can't resist it. Armenians believe you can. And that's all sorts of different implications to that. And I have preached on these subjects before. So, Calvinists believe you you can't resist it. Armenians believe that you can. Uh, Armenians believe that everybody gets a call. Uh, Calvinists don't believe that. So, if you're interested in the differences, then great, have at it. I'm not preaching on that this morning. All I want you to know is that God initiates faith. And it's encouraging because God looks into the chaos and desperation and sickness of our life and He's the one that comes looking. So for those of us who are in the room who are struggling right now with guilt and shame, be encouraged. Jesus sees you. He approaches you. He he talks to you. He's wooing you and, and we need to respond. So here's the question. He said to him, Jesus said to him, Do you want to be made well? Well, hmm, let me think. Yes? Have you, have you ever visited somebody in the hospital and asked them that question? So, do you want to get there? No, not interested in that at all. This is awesome. Why would I want to get out of here? It's the best place on earth. Don't get me, don't get me wrong, our hospital is great. But I wouldn't want to stay there, right? But he asked them a the question. we need to understand something about eastern living Jesus asked him this question for a very simple reason this man may not have wanted to get well because it's really comfortable sat in the shade on a hot day and it's really great having a constant living which is what being paralyzed would have brought him so he's got comfort he's got shade and he's got a living why would I want to change why would I want to change It's much easier for me to sit there and make excuses as to why I can't change rather than to actually change. And we resonate with this in our culture. And this might be you this morning. So please listen, first of all, hear that if you are here this morning and you've started to think about Jesus and you've started to think about church and you've started to think about God, then I can with all confidence believe that is God initiating some faith in you. But then Jesus asks the question, do you really want to be healed? Because in culture, in our society, there is a great deal of comfort sitting in the shade without Jesus. There's a great deal of comfort not changing. There's a great deal of comfort just being accepting our lot, that we don't actually want to change because we have this idea of what Christianity is, even though we're categorically wrong. We have this idea of what Christianity is because we look at the church. Whereas when we want to know what Christianity is, we need to look at Jesus. And Jesus is the one that is the standard of Christianity. We find comfort in the shade. We find control in the shade. We can, I have this mentality of, I can fix this. I don't need Jesus. So let me give you an example. One of the things that breaks my heart as a pastor more than anything else, and I'm saying this very carefully and lovingly because I know that there are people in the room who have experienced times like this, but struggles in marriage that sometimes lead to breakages in marriages. There, in my experience, I have found that when, I start, when I'm actually invited into the situation, that often it's too late. Often it's too late. Because there's this idea, especially in Kelowna, and it's not just marriage, so please listen to me, that if we can just keep everything private, in the shade, I think I can figure this out. I think that I, I, I can do this. I don't need to invite anybody in. That if we can actually step out of the shade, come out of the shadows, reach out for help, look towards somebody who might be able to speak truth and health and wisdom into your life, that we actually reach out to Jesus and invite Him in, then I honestly believe that more marriages would be saved if it was done sooner. And it might mean that you come out of the shade to one another. There's comfort in staying in the shade, especially when sitting in the shade might result in something that you actually want. So we're often in our society happy to self-medicate, or happy in our addictions, or happy in our cycle of sin, because we believe somehow that there's a control element in that, until it's too late and it ends up being chaotic like we see at the pool. See, so then the sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I'm going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. Here's what's really fascinating about this statement here. Where does this man see his salvation? It's in the pool, in the water. Even though salvation, healing, health, holiness is stood right in front of him, Jesus, he's still looking to the water for his help. That even if he actually wants the help, he's looking to the water. If I can just get this. And so what he's looking to Jesus for is actually help to get into the water. I'd be happy to partner with you to get me into the water, which ultimately will save me. And that is a wonderful picture of the way that we often look to Jesus. It's a, please help me get what I really think I need. Please help me get my salvation, rather than, you are my salvation. And for some of us, the water is different things. The water is Mr. or Mrs. Right. The water is money. The water is career. The water is getting an A in my next exam. The water is. The water is. And we look at that as our salvation. If I can just get that. All the time that Jesus is saying, no, no. That's not your salvation. I am your salvation, I am your joy, I am your freedom, I am your peace, I am your security, not your bank account, not your possessions, not the people around you. All that is good and and great, as long as it doesn't become ultimate, but I am the salvation. And he stood right there. Just man's uh, answer is not the water. What's really going to help me is what? And I'd be happy to have Jesus help me get there. You know, I've had people say to me that they go to certain churches in this town because it's good for business networking. <laughs> what? Like, I wish, looking back, that I'd actually gone, <laughs> what? But I didn't, I went, oh. Thinking, well, please don't come to our church because we have great people there. And, but, yeah, just go. I'm happy to have Jesus help me get there. I'm happy to have Jesus help me get there. I want to be a great parent. I'm happy to have Jesus help me to be a great parent. I'm happy to have Jesus come along and make my child a better person. That's not the way it works. The water is Jesus. This man's answer was not the water. His answer stood right in front of him. And this is the beautiful thing as I pull this together. Afterwards, after the healing, Jesus found him in the temple, same guy, and said to him, see You are well. It worked. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. Do you know what I love about this? He found him again. Found him again. I wonder how many of you need Jesus to find you again. Because we have a God that is relentless in his love, in his forgiveness, in his care. And you may be in this cycle of sin and shame and guilt and just like, I'm trying to live in the shadows. I don't want anybody to look at me. I don't want to know. I don't want to share what's going on. It's just so bad. Or or maybe you're just stuck. Let me encourage you. Jesus goes looking for him again. And this morning, Jesus comes looking for us again and again and again. He continues to woo. He continues to draw. He continues to change. He continues to speak to us. Look at this scripture, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. This is Jesus talking. When he had found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. We, you and I are the pearl of great price that he comes looking for. He's willing to give up everything. He gave up everything in heaven to come down on earth, to live the life that was perfect and to ultimately die on the cross that was not That the scripture says he became sin. So that, that, that we, our sin, would be attached to him and would die with him so we could have freedom. We could have freedom. To Jesus, this man was the pearl of great price. To Jesus, you are the pearl of great price. And what's lovely about this whole story is it's done on the day of rest. Rest all through the scriptures is this peace-filled, rest-filled life. Some of you, and I've been here, rest isn't just not working because your mind and your heart and spirit are not at rest. Even though you're off work. Like you go away for a two-week holiday and it's on day 13 that your brain's switched off. And then you've got to get home again, which is stressful. Because your mind and your heart and your spirit are on overdrive. What Jesus says, look, if you live with the understanding that I initiated faith in you, you're mine. You're a pearl of great price. I came looking for you and I do every day. I love you. You're precious to me. You're of great value. And I can bring you everything that you truly desire. If we could just get past what we think will bring that to us and see that that is not our salvation, but Jesus is our salvation. If we could position ourselves before that beauty and love every morning and submit to that, and we could actually bring that into our everyday thinking and lives, then Jesus will say this, I will give you rest. There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. But anyone who enters God's rest also rests from their own work just as God did from us. Now I'm not promising that on day one of your holiday your brain will switch off. But I do think that that has an indication. Do we truly rest in the faith of God? Do we truly rest in what He has done for us? Do we truly rest in the the incredible gift of salvation? And those... Who are, who are kind of thinking this. I, I believe that God is initiating thoughts and beliefs in your, in your mind and you're trying to piece it all together. Let me, let me just tell you this. Are you at rest? Because that's what Jesus has to offer. That we come to Him. We submit ourselves to Him and we pray and we ask for forgiveness. We repent of the things that we know that we've screwed up on. Knowing that we have a loving Father. The joy that was set before him endured the shame of the cross. We're the joy. We're the poor, And so we're going to worship now. And the reason I wanted to do it this way primarily is because this kind of thing is not a, oh, that's great message, Pastor. And then off we go into our chaos again. I want to give time just to go, okay, how does this apply to me today? Are you at rest? And just praying and thanking God that he, he chose you. For those of you who don't know him yet, you, you you know it's a great opportunity just to bring your life before him and close your eyes maybe and just say, "Lord, help me, forgive me." Scripture says that those of us that confess he is Lord and confess it with our believe him is Lord and confess it with our mouths are saved are saved. Let's pray. Mm. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Lord, I thank you that you're your word as as john says lord all these stories through john are signs that reveal your character to us and so lord i pray that as as you walk through the garden of our lives just like you did with adam and eve that lord we would be cognizant of that question where where are you do you want to be healed and lord i pray that as we worship together now as church family and, and friends, that, that, God, that we would, we would just confess. We'd just open our hearts, our minds, our mouths. Yes, Lord. I want that healing. I want that freedom. I want to be able to walk and run again. And Lord, I pray that the faith that you initiate, I'm so grateful for it, Lord, I pray for those in the room who got prodigals or loved ones or friends, God, who don't know you. Lord, I pray that we would be secure in the knowledge that even though we might not see it with our eyes, though you see their hearts, and you're in control, and you know. Thank you, Lord, for your love. Thank you, Lord, for your mercy. Thank you, God, that you have never, ever given up on me. God, I know that I would have walked away from me. But Lord, you persist. And so, God, this morning I pray that you will find a room full of people positioning themselves humbly before you to receive that which you are offering.